0: Section 7, Living Animals of the World, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 2, Book 2, Chapter 7, Storks, Herons, and Pelican Tribe, by W.P. Pycraft. Part 1 the storks herons and pelican tribe form a group of closely allied but externally very unlike birds distantly related to the petrels on the one hand and the cranes and hawk tribe on the other there are few birds which have figured more prominently in the realms of fairy tale and fable than the white stork to date, it is almost universally held in affectionate regard, and in Holland, Denmark, and Germany is afforded the strictest protection, every effort being made in localities where it is plentiful, to induce it to build its nest upon the house roof. Sometimes, to effect this, its fondness for a stage of some sort of being known, a cartwheel is set up, and this generally proves successful. The grateful bird erecting there on its nest... Once occupied, it may be held by several generations of tenants, and year-by-year additions are made to the nest, so that the original shallow structure at last attains a height of several feet. The material used in its construction consists of sticks and other substances. He considers himself a fortunate man, indeed, who can boast a stork's nest on his house. To show how widespread is the regard in which this bird is held, we may mention that in Morocco, according to Colonel Irby, almost every moorish hovel has its stork's nest on the top a pile of sticks lined with grass and palmetto fiber and he goes on to relate that in morocco and fez and some other large towns in the moorish empire there is a regular stork's hospital and that should one be in any way injured or fall from the nest it is sent to this institution or rather enclosure which is kept up by subscriptions from wealthy moors who regard the stork as a sacred bird Though the nest appears to be generally placed upon buildings, it is, when these fail, built in trees, and the selection of such sites must be regarded as representing the original practice of the species. The stork is one of the very few birds which appear to be quite dumb. It supplies the want of a voice by a very remarkable clapping noise made by the long, horny beak. But even this noise is rarely made, and appears to be prompted by unusual excitement. During the breeding season, Mr. Howard Saunders tells us, storks keep up a clappering with their bills, and this sound may frequently be heard proceeding from a number of birds circling in the air at such a height as to be almost invisible. The affection displayed by storks for their young is proverbial. They feed them by thrusting their beaks down into the gaping little mouths and injecting the half-digested remains of their last meal, which may represent reptile, frog, or fish, varied by a small mammal young bird worms or insects the white stork is a really beautiful bird except the quill and some of the smaller wing feathers which are black the plumage is snow white whilst the bill and the legs are bright red like the swallow it performs extensive migrations traveling in flocks numbering many thousands at an immense height scarcely less beautiful is the black stork and like its white plumaged ally it is also an occasional visitant to britain it is a handsome bird having the plumage of the upper parts black richly glossed with purple copper and green the under parts pure white and the legs and beak red but it is far less sociable and consequently less known than the white stork shunning the haunts of men and seeking seclusion for its nest in the lofty trees of large forests the largest members of the stork tribe are the adjutant storks and jabberoos the adjutants are also to our eyes at least singularly ugly birds in spite of this very natural disadvantage they have won a very high place in the regard of the people among whom they dwell on account of the fact that both in africa and india they perform with the vultures the work of scavengers yet there is something of quaintness about these birds if they are watched from a distance too great to reveal the character which imparts the ugliness to which we have referred and their actions not seldom border on the grotesque the name adjutant has been bestowed upon them on account of the peculiar gait which bears a fanciful resemblance to the measured pacing of an officer on parade like all storks they have large bodies and very long legs but they have outstripped all their relatives in the enormous size of the beak the features which have earned this unenviable reputation for ugliness are the peculiarly unkempt and unwashed appearance of the head and neck these are but scantily clothed in very shabby brown-looking down feathers and the neck is made still more we might almost say repulsive by the presence of a large bare pouch which can be distended with air to an enormous size at will the arabs on account of this pouch call the species resident with them the father of the leather bottle some however say that the correct translation of the native name would be the father of the beak but it is not only on account of their scavenging propensities that the adjutants are esteemed for it is from the under-tail coverts of these birds that the much-prized marabou or comercalli feathers are obtained at least the finest kinds for some appear to be furnished by that chief of scavengers the vulture More precious still is the celebrated stone called Zahir Mora, or Poison Killer, of great virtue and repute as an antidote to all kinds of poison, to be procured only by splitting open the head of the bird before death. Needless to say, the existence of this stone lives only in popular superstition, though how many poor birds have fallen victims thereto is not pleasant to contemplate. Adjutants choose almost inaccessible pinnacles of rock on which to build their nests, though they sometimes nest in trees. From two to four white eggs are laid, from which if all goes well, as many young covered with fluffy white down are hatched. The Jaberoos are distant relatives of, and scarcely inferior in size to, the adjutants. There are three species, one occurring in the Indian Peninsula, New Guinea, and Australia, one in Africa, and one in South America. It is to this last species that the name of jabberoo correctly applies furthermore there can be no doubt that it is one of the handsomest of its tribe the whole plumage is pure white and the upper parts are made additionally resplendent by an indescribable satin-like gloss the beautiful whiteness of its plumage is enhanced by the fact that the head and neck bill and feet are jet black some would give the palm of beauty to the african saddle billed stork black and white as in the american form are the contrasting colors but the plumage of the body, instead of being pure white, is plentifully enriched with black with beautiful purple reflections. More or less nearly allied to the storks are several species familiar enough to the professional ornithologist, but not well known generally. One of the rarest and most interesting of these is the whale-headed or shoe-billed stork of the Nile, remarkable for its enormous boat-shaped bill. More common but equally interesting are the beautiful flamingos, Apart from the brilliancy of their color, the most noticeable feature of these birds is the curious beak, which is bent downwards at a sharp angle, and provided on its inside with horny plates resembling those of the ducks and swans. The tongue of this bird, unlike that of the stork tribe generally, is thick and fleshy, and also resembles that of the duck the flamingo is the only member of the stork tribe which builds a mud-nest its foundation laid often in as much as fifteen inches of water and rising above the surface from six to eight inches with a diameter at the top of fifteen inches it forms a pile of no mean size strangely enough though these birds are never so happy as when wading knee-deep in water yet after the construction of the nest the incubation of the eggs is delayed so long that before they are hatched the water has disappeared leaving a burning plain of sun-baked mud. On the top of this nest, the parent sits with its long neck neatly curled away among the back feathers, with its long legs doubled up and projecting behind her for some distance beyond the tail. Until quite recently, it was believed that the bird incubated its eggs by sitting astride the nest, the length of the legs forbidding any other position. This has now been proved beyond cable to be an entirely erroneous opinion the eggs two in number are peculiar in that they are encased in a thick outer chalky coat which on removal reveals a greenish-blue shell the characteristic crooked beak of the adult is not at all apparent in the young bird and only appears as it approaches maturity the huge flocks in which these birds consort are graphically described by mr abel chapman as follows in herds of three hundred to four hundred several of which are often in sight at once they stand feeding in the open water all their heads under, greedily tearing up the grasses and water-plants from the bottom. On approaching them, which can only be done by extreme caution, their silence is first broken by the sentries, who commence walking away with low croaks, then hundreds of necks rise at once to full extent, every bird gaggling its loudest as they walk obliquely away, looking back over their shoulders, as though to take stock of the extent of the danger." pushing a few yards forward up they all rise and a more beautiful sight cannot be imagined than the simultaneous spreading of the crimson wings flashing against the sky like a gleam of rosy light in many respects these birds bear a strong resemblance to geese like them flamingos feed by day and great quantities of grass etc are always floating about the muddy water when a herd has been feeding Their cry is almost indistinguishable from the gaggling of geese, and they fly in the same Catanarian formations. The spoonbills and ibises also belong to the stork tribe. The former are remarkable chiefly for the strange spoon-shaped bill, one species a few hundred years ago nested in England. This remarkable beak is associated with a peculiar method of feeding, well described by the late Mr. Wallie. During the operation, he says, the beak was passed sideways through the water and kept open till something palatable came within its grasp. But the action by which the bird effected this was most singular, for instead of turning only its head and neck, it turned its whole body from left to right and from right to left, like the balance wheel of a watch, its neck stretched out and its beak immersed perpendicularly to about half its depth. This semicircular action was kept up with great vigor and at an a tolerably quick march. A graphic description by Mr. Alfred Crowley of a visit to the breeding haunts of the spoonbill about fifteen miles from Amsterdam in eighteen eighty four is well worth reproducing here. Taking a small boat in tow, we were punted across the open water over which we were flying numbers of sand martins, swifts, common and black terns, and black-headed gulls. The reeds being full of coots, moorhens, sedge, and reed warblers, etc., and in the distance we saw rising above the reeds occasionally a small spoonbill or purple heron. On nearing a large mass of reeds, one of the boatmen struck the side of the punt with a pole. When up rose some fifty spoonbills and eight or ten purple herons. As we came closer to the reeds, they were soon hovering over our heads with an easy shot some two hundred of the former and fifty or sixty of the latter strange to say not a note or sound escaped from the spoonbills and only a few croaks from the herons on reaching the reeds we moored our punt and two of the men waiting in the mud took us in the small boat about fifty yards through the reeds where we found ourselves surrounded by spoonbills nests they were placed on the mud among the reeds built about one foot or eighteen inches high and two feet in diameter at the bottom tapering to one foot at the top where there was a slight depression in which lay four eggs or in most cases four young birds many ready to leave the nest and several ran off as we approached in the nests with young there was a great difference in age and size one being about a day or so old and the oldest nearly ready to leave the nest some two or three weeks old so that evidently the birds lay their four eggs at considerable intervals and begin to sit on depositing the first after wandering about a matter of difficulty on account of the mud we found a clutch of only three eggs and one of four which i managed to blow we also obtained two clutches of eggs of the purple heron but some of the latter had young the ibises though much alike in form are strangely diverse in color one species was sacred to the ancient egyptians the reverence and affection they showed to this bird above all others is probably largely due to its migrating habits which obtained in that far past just as they do to-day the naturalist brem says on this subject when the nile after being at its lowest ebb rose again and the water assumed a red tinge then the ibis appeared in the land of the pharaohs as a sure guarantee that the stream the giver and preserver of life which the people in their profound reverence raised to the rank of a god would once again empty the well spring of plenty over the thirsty land the servant and messenger of an all-bounteous deity commanded of a necessity for reverence of a poetic and distinguished character by reason of its importance he too must be a god another species the glossy ibis occurs sometimes in britain perhaps the most beautiful of all is the scarlet ibis of america numbers of which can be seen in the zoological gardens of london on account of the curved sickle-shaped bill the ibises were at one time believed to be related to the curlews this however is now known to be quite incorrect it was at one time believed that the ibis was adopted as part of the arms of the town of liverpool this bird is termed a liver from which that flourishing town derived its name and is now standing on the spot where the pool was on the verge of which the liver was killed the arms of the town of liverpool however as mr howard Saunders points out are comparatively modern and seem to have no reference to the ibis the bird which was adopted in the arms of the extinct earls of liverpool was described in a former edition of burke's peerage as a cormorant holding in the beak a branch of seaweed in the plantagenet seal of liverpool which is believed to be of the time of king john the bird has the appearance of a dove bearing in its bill a sprig of olive, apparently intended to refer to the advantages that commerce would derive from peace. The glossy ibis has been found breeding in colonies of thousands in Slavonia. The nests are large structures formed of sticks and a few weeds, never far from the water, and many even in the colony referred to, or so near the surface that they appeared to be floating. The eggs, three or four in number, are of a beautiful greenish-blue. The young, while still unable to fly, climb actively among the branches of the trees in which the nest is placed, clinging so firmly with the feet as to be removed with difficulty. In the first mention of these two groups, the common heron is the best known in the British islands. Indeed, there must be few who have not encountered it in a wild state at some time or another. In suitable spots, it may occasionally be met with standing mid-leg in water on the lookout for eels and other fish and frogs, a diet varied by an occasional young bird or small mammal. Sometimes this prey is hunted, so to speak, the bird walking along with a slow, measured step, striking with lightning rapidity and wonderful precision the moment its victim is sighted, whilst at others it stands motionless, as when fishing, striking the instant the unsuspecting eel or flounder comes within range from the earliest times until the reign of william IV, the heron was specially protected by law being held in high regard both as an object of sport and a desirable addition to the dinner table so late as james I's time an act was passed making it illegal to shoot with any gun within six hundred paces of a heronry the favorite way of taking the heron was by hawking a sport which has furnished material in abundance for both poet and painter herons breed in more or less extensive colonies the nests somewhat bulky structures made of sticks and lined with twigs being placed on the tops of high trees from four to six as the normal number of eggs and these are of a beautiful sea green color the young are thinly clad in long hairy looking down and for some considerable time are quite helpless similar in appearance to the common heron is the american great blue heron though it is by no means the largest of the herons as its name might seem to imply this distinction belongs to the goliath heron a native of africa it is remarkable not only for its size but for an extraordinary development of long loose feathers hanging down from the lower part of the breast and bearing a strange resemblance to an apron concealing the upper part of the legs passing over many species we pause to descant on the egrets These are numbered amongst the most unfortunate of birds, and this because of the gracefulness and beauty of certain parts of the plumage worn during the breeding season, which are coveted alike by eastern magnates and western women. The feathers in question are those known as egrets, or more commonly ospreys, and their collection, as Professor Newton points out, causes some of the most abominable cruelty practiced in the animal world. The wearing of these feathers can no longer be excused, for Sir William Flower in England and Professor W.E.D. Scott in America have given the greatest publicity to the horrible barbarities and sickening scenes which are perpetrated by the men sent to gather in this harvest. The egrets, however, are not the only victims, as a glance at the milliner's windows will show the distorted and mangled bodies of almost every known species of the smaller birds being therein displayed, Many of those who wear these ornaments offend unwittingly. It is certain that if they realized the suffering and waste of life that this method of decoration entails, they would eschew any but ostrich feathers forever. The cattle egret, better known as the buff-backed heron, breeds in the southern portion of the Spanish peninsula, where from March to autumn it is very common in the marshes of Andalusia, thousands congregating there, herding with the cattle, from the backs of which they may be often seen picking off the ticks, hence the Spaniards give them a name meaning cattle cleaners. The night herons are comparatively small birds, and derive their name from their habit of turning night into day, waking up only as the shades of evening fall to hunt for food, only during the breeding season is this habit broken through, when they are obliged to hunt for food for their young during the daytime. They breed in colonies, in bushes or low trees in the neighborhood of swamps. In some places they are protected, as for instance round the great Honam Temple at Canton, where these birds are held sacred. Colonel Swinhoe, says Mr. Howard Saunders, describes the nests as placed thickly in some venerable banyans, the granite slabs that form the pavement beneath these trees being bedaubed with the droppings of old and young, while from the nests arose the chattering cry of the callow broods, for which the parent birds were catering the whole day long, becoming more active at sunset. As darkness set in, the noise and hubbub from the trees rose to a fearful pitch. In Hungary, large numbers of herons and egrets breed together in the marshes, egrets and night herons breeding together with the common and purple herons. Landbeck, an enthusiastic ornithologist, writes of such heronries, the clamour in these breeding-places is so tremendous and singular in its character as almost to defy description it must be heard before a person can form any idea of what it is like at a distance these hideous noises blend with a confused roar so as in some way to resemble the hubbub caused by a party of drunken hungarian peasants and it is only on a nearer approach the separate notes of the two species the common and the night heron can be distinguished namely craik and quack to which the notes of the young, zek, 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 and different keys serve as an accompaniment. When close to, the noise is tremendous and the stench unbearable. This, together with the sight of dozens of young herons in every stage of putrefaction and teeming with maggots, is perfectly sickening, though the contemplation of life and movement in this immense heronry is a matter of interest to the true ornithologist, The tops of the highest trees are usually occupied by the nests of the common heron, a little lower down as the habitation of the shy and beautiful great egret, while in the forks of the lowest branches the night heron takes up her abode. All these species build in one and the same tree, the nests numbering not infrequently as many as fifteen in a single tree, and yet peace invariably reigns amongst all these varieties. High over the trees appears the common heron, laden with booty, Announcing his arrival with a hoarse creach, when changing his tone to a goose-like da 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 da, he either jerks the provender down the throats of the ever hungry youngsters, or throws it up before them. When the fish are greedily swallowed, amid a desperate accompaniment of go ye he ye go ye 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 a sound much resembling the frantic cry of a calf which is being lifted into a farmer's market cart. The conduct of the more cautious egret is very different. Circling far above the nest, she first satisfies herself that no foe is hidden below before she alights among her family, which are much quieter and less hasty than their cousins. The night herons, on the contrary, approach their nests from all sides, high and low, their crops filled with frogs, fish, and insects. A deep quack or goack announces the arrival of the old bird already from some distance to which the young answer while feeding with a note resembling quet quet or quehoa he kwe hoa. as soon as the parents have taken their departure the youngsters recommence their concert and from every nest unerupted cries of sik 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 cek cek and get 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 are the order of the day This amusement is varied by the nestlings climbing out among the branches till they reach the top of the tree whence they can have a good lookout and can see the old birds returning home from a long distance, though they are in many cases often mistaken in their identity. A common North American bird is the so-called green heron, known by many local aliases such as fly-up-the-creek, chalk-line, and chucklehead seen at short range its plumage is lustrous and beautiful but this disappears as soon as the bird takes wing the nest is a very loose construction and a story is told of one which was such a shaky concern that every time the old birds jarted, a stick fell off and the structure grew smaller and smaller until the day when the young were ready to fly there were but three sticks left finally these parted and the little herons found themselves perching on the branch that once held the nest The end of section seven by Dave Courier.